Well, good morning. I'm really glad that you guys made the conscious decision to join us this morning on July 4th to come worship together and to spend time in the Word so that we can be molded and shaped into the image of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, and I uh, hope that you do, uh, I open up with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. That's Chronicles, not Corinthians. Uh, Chronicles is in the Old Testament. Corinthians is in the New Testament. Uh, so if you go to Corinthians instead, you'll be uh, way off uh, course. Plus, 2 Corinthians only has, I think, 13 chapters, and so uh, there is not a uh, 2 Corinthians 36. But 2 Chronicles chapter 36 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we're going to end up there, um, but in order to understand the passage, in order, in order to understand the text, uh, I need to take you back a little bit, uh, and so we'll eventually work up to it, um, but we'll be getting to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Let me pray for us, and we'll get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful, wonderful, powerful name of Jesus. We pray this morning we would, we would understand just how powerful it is. God, move mightily through your word. Now, this morning, shape our hearts, shape our minds into the image of Jesus. God, this morning, conform us into the image of Jesus and help us to, to live lives that glorify you with everything that we do. Help us to think rightly about who you are and your word. Help us to understand and glimpse just a small portion of your glory and grace for us this morning. God, flow through your word to overcome us with your grace and your love. We pray for our time in the word that we would, be, we would leave here better and more in tune with you because of our time in your word this morning. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verse 58, says this. If you're not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And at evening you shall say, if only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised that you shall never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale for your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. So Moses is is speaking to a, a great multitude of Israelites. He's standing in front of a great crowd of people of Israel, and they know their history. They know their story. They know what got them there to this place. They know the story of Abraham. The, these Israelites knew that, 
that God, a few hundred years earlier, called Abraham and, and promised that he would make a nation for himself out of Abraham. He promised that, that this nation made from the descendants of Abraham would be special, that it would have a, a closeness with God, that God would bless them, and that through that, God would bless all the nations of the earth through them. They, they knew that promise. They knew that, that they would receive the blessings of God like no nation in the history of the world ever had, and that they would be a, a blessing to the nations of the world. They knew what happened in Egypt. Their parents and grandparents lived it. They knew that, that their parents and grandparents had been slaves in Egypt. They had been beaten and abused, exploited for their labor. They knew that, that their parents and grandparents in Egypt weren't experiencing the blessings that God promised. They knew that they, they weren't living in the land that God promised to give them. They knew they weren't experiencing all the good things that they were supposed to be experiencing. And so their parents and grandparents were wondering in Egypt, is God even uh, around? Does God even care about us? Does God still look upon us with favor? Does God, does God even remember us? And then they quickly realized that he did. Because the all-powerful, almighty God sent plagues on Egypt. He, he, he filled the land with flies and gnats and frogs and locusts. He bathed the land in darkness and blood. And he killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. And he rescued his people out of Egypt. These Israelites knew that their parents, when they were leaving Egypt, came to the sea. And as they, they, they approached the sea, the Egyptian army approached them from behind. But God parted the sea so that the Israelites could walk through on dry land. And then God closed the sea and drowned the Egyptian armies when they attempted to attack. They, these Israelites knew that their parents had seen God on a mountain. That God came and visited his people. And that he promised them, he had made them a covenant that he, he would be their God and they would be his people. He, he promised that they would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, that they would be set apart uh, unlike any other nation in the world, and that God himself would dwell among them, and he gave them a covenant, a promise that said, if you keep my commandment, if you, if you follow what I tell you, you will receive limitless blessing. You will experience a, a Genesis 1 reality, free from, free from pain, free from suffering, and in fact, you will begin the process of reconciling the world. And through you, the rest of the world will be brought back in line to what it should have been in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. That God made them that covenant and said, if you, all you have to do is keep my commands. All you have to do specifically is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And if you do that, you will receive limitless blessings from God, tangible blessing from God. Genesis 1 reality, and you will bring about redemption for the world. So Moses is talking to these Israelites. They knew that their parents failed. Their parents did not keep the command, and so they all died in the desert. And Moses is repeating this covenant that God made with the Israelites. He's repeating it for this new generation, and he's reminding them all that God promised he would do for them, all that, all that God told them to do, all of the commandments. And he, he reminded them that not only is there blessing if you follow, there's also curses if you don't. It, it's a two-sided covenant. If you, if you follow God, if you obey his commands, if you, uh, if you love him with all of your heart, you will receive 
limitless blessings from God, but on the other hand, if you don't, there are curses. I read you at the beginning the, the tail end of the curses in Deuteronomy 28 that ultimately they would be kicked out of the land, completely cut off and separated from God. And if they, if they failed to follow God's command, if they failed to love him with all of their heart, soul, and might, then they would be removed from the land and separated from the, from the presence of God. And Moses said, hey, this is the covenant. This is what God offers. Follow him. Limitless blessing. Rebel against him. Curses. Are you in or are you out? And the Israelites said, we're in. We're going to keep up our end of the bargain. We're going to keep up our side of the covenant. We're going to follow God. We're going to, to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our might. And we're going to experience the blessings of God. We're going to, to bring about the redemption of the world. We're going to see in, in, in our nation uh, a Genesis 1 world. And we're going to expand that to the rest of the world until all of creation is glorifying and praising God as it was designed to do. They said, we're in. And then they marched into the land that God had promised them, and they took it with very few issues because God was fighting for them. They, they walked into the promised land, and they, they had war stories that they were telling their kids, and their kids were telling their kids for, for generations and centuries to come. Like, these are the stories that the Israelites would tell around the campfire. Like, do you remember when we came up to the, the city of Jericho and God tore their walls down for us? Do you remember when we defeated an army led by several kings that came against us all at once? Was was far bigger than our army, but God fought for us, and so we won. Do you remember those? They'd sit around the, the campfire and tell those war stories because, because God was fighting for his people. The, 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 uh, the nations, the people that were living in that land were frightened when Israel came over because they saw that God was fighting for them. They saw that, that there was something special about this group of people. They had a blessing from God. They had the presence of God. God was fighting for them. And so they took the land with very few issues. And then they lived in the land, and they began this vicious cycle. Where for several hundred years, they would receive the blessings of God and then rebel against him and experience curses and then repent and experience blessings and then rebel and experience curses. And for, for several hundred years, they went through this cycle until finally they asked for a king. They said, we, we need somebody to lead us. We need somebody to rule us, to guide us, to direct us. And it got off to a really bad start with King Saul. But finally, they got King David. And we talked about David last week, that God made a covenant with David. That God promised David that, that one of his descendants would always sit on the throne and that one of his descendants would always rule his people. So, so now if you're Israel, you're ecstatic. I mean, you're the people of God, and you have God's hand-chosen, hand-selected king leading you. Because that's what, that's what, that's what uh, is, is entailed in that covenant with David, that God is hand-selecting a dynasty to put over his people, and that that God is hand-selecting a viceroy, someone to, to rule in his place and lead his people for them. No other nation in the world has that. And so if you're Israel, you, you feel like you are an unstoppable force. And you believe that nothing can come against you. You believe nothing can beat you because God is on your side. You have 
all of the promises that no other nation in the world has. You have a king that is hand-selected by God as his chosen viceroy for his people. You, you are ecstatic. And then David's son Solomon builds a beautiful temple in the city of Jerusalem. And the physical presence of God dwells in all of its glory in that temple. So now if you're Israel, you really think that nothing is going to beat you. Because in Jerusalem, you have God's presence among your nation. You have God's chosen king living in a palace there right next to the temple. You, you are unstoppable. So you have the promises of God, the king that was selected by God, and the physical presence of God in your people. You're, you're unstoppable. In the United States, a lot of people bought into the idea of American exceptionalism. This idea that the United States is the greatest country uh, on the planet, uh, maybe in world history. Uh, and uh, since today is July 4th, I imagine that, that most of you will go out of here and celebrate how great this country is. Uh, but the, the Israelites had that same emotion, that same feeling for their nation, but times 10. Because they're not celebrating their nation because of economic achievements or military superiority or democratic advancement. They are celebrating their nation because God selected them as his people. Because God is on their side, God physically dwells among them, and God's hand-selected king is ruling them. Why wouldn't you celebrate that? Why wouldn't you believe that you're the greatest nation in the world? Why wouldn't you believe that you're an unstoppable force? Because you're a kingdom that is going to last forever. With God's king on the throne and God's physical presence there among you. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was unwise. He was harsh and ruthless, and because of that, the kingdom split in two. The northern kingdom of Israel was ruled by whomever, and the southern kingdom of Israel ruled by a Davidic king for their entirety of existence. They never rejoined, but if, so if you're Judah, you're that southern kingdom, you're, that's a bit of a blow to your ego, that we're this unstoppable kingdom that will never end, and now we're split in two. That's a bit of a blow, but it's also not that big of a deal because you still have the presence of God in Jerusalem. You still have... The God's hand-selected king on the throne, you still have all the promises of God. So really, everybody else, they're just deserters. All, that northern kingdom, they're just abandoning the kingdom of God. They're just, they're just leaving uh, all of the promises and the presence of God and God's king behind. They're just, they're just deserters. So, in 721 BC, when the Assyrian Empire wipes the northern kingdom off the map, if you're, if you're Judah, oh well. They're all deserters anyway. We're really the people of God. And then the Assyrian Empire marches south and tries to take over Judah, and God proves that they are his people. God fights for Judah and, and sends the much stronger, much mightier Assyrian Empire fleeing back up into Assyria. So, so if you're Judah, you're thinking you're unstoppable. You have this, this innate sense that you're special because God is on your side because you, his presence is there among you, that his king is on the throne. Now bear in mind, at this point, they have been ruled for several hundred years by, by imperfect kings, some way worse than others. And also bear in mind, at this point, they are not following God. They are, they are worshiping several other gods. They have completely rejected God's rule. They are not holding up their end of the covenant, but, but that doesn't seem to bother them because they still think we are... We are an unstoppable force. The promises of God and God's on our side. 587 BC, 
the Babylonian Empire marches on Judah. And if you're Judah, you, you might be a little scared. You know it might get a little tense, but you know, hey, God's on your side. We're going to be okay. But in 587 BC, when Babylon marches on Judah, it turns out that Judah not holding up their end of the covenant is a way bigger problem than they think it is. And that's where we get 2 Chronicles chapter 36, beginning in verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Verse 17, therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on the young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, to me and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the walls of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all of its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths until all the days that it lay desolate it kept Sabbaths to fulfill 70 years. So we see in verse 15, that God has compassion on his people. Like God doesn't want to curse them. God doesn't want to kick them out. They're in a covenant relationship, which says, if you follow me, I'll give you blessings. If you don't follow me, I'll give you curses. They have not been following him for 600 years. For roughly 600 years, they've had this covenant in front of them, and they have not been following God. They have been abandoning God. They've been worshiping other idols. They've been, they've been serving other uh, deities. They've been, uh, they've, they have pursued money as their ambition. They have enslaved their fellow Israelites. They've oppressed the poor and the downtrodden. They have completely rebelled against God and rejected him. But God has compassion on his people, and he keeps sending them messengers. He keeps sending them prophet after prophet because he is imploring them to come back to him. He's allowed them to exist for 600 years in rebellion because he doesn't want to curse them. He doesn't want to send them away. He doesn't want to bring upon them death and destruction and calamity. He doesn't want to do any of that. So he is imploring them, sending messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet, imploring them to come back. He sends them Isaiah. He sends them Jeremiah, he sends them Elijah, he sends them Elisha, he sends them Hosea, he sends them Joel, he sends them Amos, he sends them Micah, he sends them Habakkuk, he sends them Zephaniah, he sends them untold numbers of prophets and messengers imploring Israel, commanding them to turn back to him because he has compassion on them. He is, he is imploring them to stop rebelling, to stop sinning, and to come back to him because he loves them because he wants to bless them, because he wants them to be his people. He doesn't want to curse them, so he is imploring them to come back. They had one job as a people. Love God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and all of their might. That was the one thing they had to do in the covenant. Their one job as a people, 
to experience all of the blessings that they would ever need and to bring about the reconciliation of the world, all they had to do was stop sinning. All they had to do was to stop being, uh, to stop rebelling against them, against God. All they had to do to, to reverse everything that happened with the fall was to just love God and love him alone. And they rebelled constantly. They failed that one job spectacularly, but God still loved them, and he kept sending them messenger after messenger, telling them to come back to him so they didn't receive the curses that they were due. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. Israel didn't want to hear it. So when God sent them messenger after messenger, they ignored messenger after messenger. They persecuted prophets. They murdered the people that God sent them to turn them back. God sent them messenger after messenger, drawing them back to himself. And instead of listening and turning back and receiving the blessings of God, they murdered the prophets because they didn't want to hear it. They despised the message of God. They despised the messengers of God, and they, they completely rebelled against God until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. After 600 years of rebellion against God, after 600 years of killing and persecuting his prophets, finally in 587 B.C., God raised up the Chaldeans. That's the group of people that took over Babylon. So God raised up the Babylonian Empire to come and to, t and to lay siege to Jerusalem. After 600 years of rebelling against God, the, the Babylonian Empire marches on Jerusalem and they, they lay siege to the city. Now, if you know anything about siege warfare, you know how bad it is for the people inside the city. And these, this Babylonian Empire, uh, they stopped all supplies coming into the city. So the people inside the city were starving. They, they were trying to eat anything that they could that they thought would give them nutritional value. I mean, there are stories uh, that happen inside of cities of people eating animal dung or even uh, uh, reverting to cannibalism just to try to eat something because they're starving on the inside. And right when they're at their lowest point, starving to death, eating things that, that never in their wildest dreams would they have wanted to eat. The Babylon, Babylonian arm, army breaks through the walls and they start slaughtering the people of Judah. The Babylonian king breaks through the wall and they, it says that they killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man, virgin, old, age, old man, or aged he gave them all into his hands. So the, the Babylonian army storms the city. They, they take the gates. They storm into houses. They kill entire families. It didn't matter if you were old or young, male or female. They would come in and just slaughter people, completely wiping out a, a whole chunk of the people of Judah. No respecters of, uh, of who the person was or what they contributed or who they would be. Uh, they just came in and killed the people of Judah. Just slaughtering them. And not only did they kill 
the people of Judah, but they desecrated the city. You see in verse 18 that all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all of these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. So here, the people of God, and the city that they, they felt could not be touched because God was there, God's king was there, and all the promises of God were there. Those people are being slaughtered. And the Babylonian Empire march into, the, the soldiers march into the beautiful temple that stood as a symbol of God's presence in the land of Judah, in the city of Jerusalem. They marched into that temple and they stole what was inside and they burned it to the ground. And then they marched into the palace next door, the beautiful monument to the fact that God's hand-selected king was ruling over his people. They marched into that palace, they stole what's inside, and they burned that to the ground too. They leveled the city. That city that, they, that the, the people of Judah believed could not be touched, the Babylonian Empire leveled it. They took down the walls, they took down the buildings, they demolished the city of Judah, the city of Jerusalem. And then those who were left, they took into captivity. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons till the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. So if you were fortunate enough to survive the siege, you were fortunate enough to survive the slaughter, you were taken into captivity and marched all the way to some far corner of the Babylonian Empire. So imagine you're a, you're a young man of Judah. Like you've grown up in Judah your whole life. You've, you've grown up knowing the history. You've grown up knowing and believing that you're special because God is on your side, because, because his presence lives in your nation, because God's king was on the throne. You're special, and now you're chained to your fellow citizens marching halfway across the world. And your, your feet are blistered and cut. You're, you're exhausted and, and anxious and worried because you don't know what life is going to be like when you get to where you're going, and you don't even know where you're going. You don't know what your end destination is, so I imagine you're a young man of Judah. You're sitting around a fire at night trying to keep warm. There's, there's tears in everybody's eyes. You're singing a song that reminds you of home, and you're just wondering, how did we get here? Aren't, aren't we special? Aren't we God's people? D don't we have the promises from God? Aren't, don't we have the promises that he told Abraham? Don't we have the promises that he told David, don't we have all of those promises? Wasn't, wasn't God living in our city? Wasn't, wasn't God's king on, the th on our throne? Like, how, how did we get here? Because of their rebellion against God and their failure to keep their end of the covenant, they were rejected, they were exiled, they were separated from God, cut off from his blessings. They did it to themselves. That by their constant rebellion and failure to love God, they were separated from God and experienced what every other person in the history of the world experiences. Separation from God. Being cut off from him. The emptiness and the hollowness of a life 
lived separated from the presence of God. They experienced the brokenness and the pain of a world that's marred by death. They, they experienced the fear and anxiety and, and worry and stress that every single person experiences separated and cut off from God because of their rebellion against him and failure to keep his commands, failure to keep his covenant. They're sitting there wondering how we got there, and it shouldn't have been a surprise because it was their failure to keep the covenant, their failure to follow God that got them to that point. Second Chronicles ends on a hopeful note. It says in verse 22, that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdoms and also put it in writing. So, so the Persian Empire, about 70 or so years after this event, the Persian Empire came and conquered the Babylonian Empire. They took over and overthrew the Babylonians. So effectively, the Persians now ruled Judah. And so Cyrus, their king, says this in verse 23. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So, so at the end of Second Chronicles, it ends on a hopeful note that, that maybe now they will finally return and be the people of God that they were supposed to be. Because the king of Persia says, hey, God is telling me that, that you guys need to go back. That, that there needs to be a nation of Judah. That God needs to have a temple in the city of Jerusalem. That, that God's presence is going to dwell there in that land. And so three waves of people go back to Judah to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They go back and, and, and go back to become the people of God. They go back to, to celebrate, to be the people that they weren't before. They go back to keep their end of the covenant, to experience God's blessings and to, to distribute those blessings to the rest of the world. They're, they're not independent. It's not, a, it's not a complete image of what they're supposed to be, but it seems like now they're finally headed in the right direction, that now they're finally going to be the people of God. But we find out in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that they are just as bad as the people that left, the people that were exiled, that they are just as sinful, that they are just as broken and, and wicked as the people who were kicked out of the land. By the end of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is praying to God, and he says, God, remember me and the good that I did. Don't lump me in with these people. Don't, don't lump me in with these people who are sinful and broken because I, I have tried to follow you. So what we see at the end of, the, of Ezra and Nehemiah is that those people are just as bad. Israel is just as incapable of fulfilling their covenant after the exile as they were before. The Israelites were incapable of being the people of God. They were incapable of loving God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their might. They were incapable of experiencing the blessings of God, and so they were incapable of reconciling the world. They couldn't even fix themselves. They couldn't even fix their own hearts. They couldn't even fix their own land. So they were experiencing the brokenness and the emptiness of a reality separated from God because they were just as wicked as the people that left before. What they needed, what they were in, in desperately seeking, what they were looking for was a Messiah. 
They were in desperate need of somebody to come save them, to rescue them, to, to fix what was broken on the inside because what they realized was they couldn't do it on their own. Their hearts were messed up. They were sinful. They were broken. They couldn't keep the covenant, so they were looking forward to somebody who would come and rule them and lead them and guide them and enable them to be the people that they're supposed to be. Somebody who would come and distribute the blessings of God to them. Somebody who would allow them to reconcile the world. They were looking forward anxiously to a Messiah. They needed somebody because they were incapable of following God themselves. And everything they were looking forward to, everything they were longing for, everything they were anxiously hoping for was wrapped up in Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah that they were looking for. Jesus is the one who would rule and lead and guide his people that they were longing for. Jesus is the one who would fix what was broken in their hearts. Jesus is the one who would, who would re restore them and call them back and bring them home into the nation and the people of God. Jesus is the one that God would send. You and I are just as bad as Israel. You and I are just as hopeless as Israel. That story of Israel that is repeated time and time again, that they are broken, that they are messed up, that they are incapable of earning God's favor, that is the same thing for us. We have all experienced it, and so we are just uh, as bad as Israel, and you and I are in desperate need of a Messiah. So trust in Jesus. We are in desperate need of somebody to come and save us. Jesus is that somebody, so trust in Jesus. You cannot earn the favor of God. You cannot earn your way into the presence of God for all of eternity any more than Israel could. Because if it was left up to you, our, every single one of our hearts are broken and fall short of the glory of God. We will all deserve the wrath of God and eternal separation from him in, him in hell. That's what every single one of us deserves. That same exile that the Israelites experience is the same thing that you and I experience on a daily basis and should experience for our entire life, uh, for, for all of eternity. That we are separated from God, cut off from his blessings, experiencing the emptiness and the hollowness, the pain and the tragedy of a life separated from God. Like, that's our reality. And if we mustered up all of our efforts, if we did everything that we could to try to be God's people, to try to be good, we would still fall short, and we would still earn and deserve the curses of God, the wrath of God, and eternal separation from him. We desperately need somebody to come in and fix our hearts. Somebody to come in and save us, and that person is Jesus. God made a way by the death and resurrection of Jesus to save us, to bring us back in a restoration uh, to him, that to, to call us home and bring us back to being the people of God. To enter into his kingdom and live there for all of eternity and experience his blessings for, forever and ever. God, God has made a way for that, and his name is Jesus. So trust in Jesus. If today you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you, you are living currently in exile from God, separated from him. You know the emptiness and the brokenness of that life. You know that there's nothing you can do that will satisfy you. There's nothing you can do that will give you ultimate, lasting, fulfilling joy. It's because you are separated from your creator 
worshiping things that you were never meant to worship. But God has made a way for you to return to him and experience his blessings for all of eternity. So trust in Jesus. And if you're here this morning, you say, I've already done that. Then never lose sight of the glory and the grace of Jesus. Don't experience the blessings of God. Don't experience a, a restored relationship with him and then go worship other things. Keep your eyes on Jesus because he is ultimately worthy of all of our praise and all of our honor. Like bow down and worship him as king and Lord. Fall at his feet and praise him for his grace and forgiveness because none of us ever deserved it. And then go and tell the good news to everybody that you know that there is a God and there is a Messiah who can save them and rescue them from their exile from God, their separation from the Lord, can save them from the emptiness and the brokenness that they, they experience every day. Go and tell that message to a world that is longing to hear it. This morning we're going to sing. And when we sing, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus, if you've never trusted in him before, you are currently in exile from God, please, while we sing, I'll be standing right here, please, Come talk to me about the salvation that Jesus offers. Please come talk to me about what it means to place your faith in Jesus and experience his blessings for now and forever. And if you're reminded this morning of the glory and the grace of Jesus, then as we sing, pour out your heart in praise and worship to him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You have sent us Jesus as a Messiah, as a Savior. You had compassion on us even though we didn't deserve it. God, we may not have murdered your prophets. We may not have, uh, we may not have persecuted them. But God, we still have rebelled against you and, and, and fallen so far short of, of your glory. We are people that have never loved you with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, and all of our minds. If, if it were left up to us, we would love everything else but you. But God, you loved us enough to send us your son to die on a cross so that we could have eternal life. So God, I praise you. I thank you for your son, and I pray this morning, if there's anybody here who is currently separated from God, is currently feeling that, that, that emptiness and brokenness, that God, this morning, you would, you would remind them and teach them of the, the fact that there is a Messiah, there is an escape, there is a, a way to return to you and to experience life with you. And God, may all of us keep our eyes on Jesus. May all of us follow you and glorify you in everything that we do because you are worthy of all of our honor and praise. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray.